0: Uh, open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. And please read with me. These are God's words to us. Now, when they, Jesus and his disciples, drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage to the mount of olives then jesus sent two disciples saying to them go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her untie them and bring them to me if anyone says to you if anyone says anything to you you shall say to them the lord needs them and he will send them at once this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey in the colt and put, them on, put on them their cloaks and Jesus sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Pray, open our eyes, Lord, that we might see Jesus Christ, our King, that we might see you not just in a historical record, we might see you, the living and active God, Open our eyes to see you and to love you, Lord. We need no less a miracle than the blind man on the side of the road in Jericho. We need you to have mercy on us and open our eyes. Open them today to this text of Scripture we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is a story of a royal procession. A king is coming to his royal city to be crowned. Jesus planned how he would make his royal entrance, though he didn't spell out what it meant. Only later did Matthew and the other disciples understand that what Jesus did was a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. The king has arrived at his city. And he now proceeds to enter and to take his throne. His loyal subjects come out to meet him as he ascends the royal mountain. This was more than a spiritual event. This was a political act. Now, though I am old... I have never witnessed a coronation. The closest thing we can get to royalty in this country is the British crown. Queen Elizabeth was crowned queen three years before I was born. But while Elizabeth has the clothes and the palaces that befit a queen, she lacks the power that goes with it. She's... Kind of like a show queen. As I said, I've never been, I've never witnessed a coronation, but I have been to an inauguration. I was present at the inauguration of Ronald Reagan in 1981. Whoa. Two women in our church worked in the office of the senator who was the chairman of the committee that hosted the event. And so they were responsible for distributing the thousands of tickets. And they had some extras. And so Nancy and I, and our friends Gary and Betsy, were able to attend the inauguration ceremony. I don't think I deserved to be there. I certainly hadn't campaigned for President Reagan's election. The event took place on the steps of the Capitol. We arrived to a sunny January day that was unseasonably warm. Every national official who counts for anything was present. Congress, the Supreme Court, cabinet officers, military leaders, and then there were all the other guests, thousands of us, and I suppose most were supportive of the President's campaign. I don't remember much of the event, but a few things surprised me. The first was that the crowd in our section of seats was far more excited to see the country music stars who were finding their seats than they were to see the president. (laughs) The second was that seeing the president in person from maybe 50 yards away, I I noticed that he was just a man, shorter than I expected. And he had very red cheeks. Well, if those are my main memories, you can tell the event had no impact on my life. As a result of this, I did not become a Reagan fanboy. But I was impressed at the power and the glory of the American presidency on display. President Reagan may not have become king, but he sure looked powerful and important on the tall platform built into the Capitol steps. Jesus' inauguration to Jerusalem as king was dramatically different. He came with no advanced planners to support him. He had no security detail. The powerful in Jerusalem knew nothing of his arrival. He was hidden in the crowds of people who were making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover. Passover. They had made the 17-mile climb from Jericho to the top of the Mountain of Olives, which overlooks Jerusalem. Before you reach the crest of the mountain, there is a small village called Bethphage. Jesus sent two of his disciples to find a donkey there, along with her colt, an animal that Mark and Luke record had never been ridden before. When asked why they were taking the animals, they were to reply, the Lord needs them. And I think we can infer from this that the owner had some knowledge of Jesus, and so he allowed Jesus to borrow them. Mark records that they promised to return the donkeys immediately. If you picture this scene in your minds, it's almost comical. Kings did not ride on young unbroken donkeys to enter their royal cities. They rode on horses with a phalanx of officers surrounding them on their horses. This king rides on a small animal who has to be accompanied by his mother. And I wonder. Did Jesus have to lift his feet so that they didn't drag on the ground? The important people of Jerusalem did not come out to greet him. Instead, the crowd of pilgrims spontaneously got in on the event and spread their coats and flattened palm branches on the road as a royal carpet. They recognized him as the Son of David with shouts of praise that quoted Psalm 118. Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! How deeply they understood what they were doing is not clear. But what is clear is that this spontaneous event turns into a royal procession. The Son of David... The longed-for king of Israel, a descendant of royalty, the king of the blind and the lame and the rejected, the king of the social nobodies and earnest seekers of God, is entering the ancient royal city of Jerusalem with the most unlikely royal entourage. The crowd could see what the people of the city could not see. And yet, the crowd didn't really get it. When asked by the inhabitants of the city who this man was, the best that they could offer was that he was a prophet. Do you recognize this king? Can you see him? Two weeks ago, Larry beautifully spelled out to us the significance of the event that began the long climb from Jericho to Jerusalem. Jesus healed a blind man. The man knew he was blind, and he cried out for mercy to Jesus. In his darkness, he knew the one person who could give him sight. And this, of course, symbolizes the darkness we all inhabit unless Jesus has mercy on us and gives us sight. What we need to see is Jesus. Who do you see when you look at Jesus? On that day, 2,000 years ago, some saw a prophet some saw a clown some saw an insurrectionist who do you see do you see a king do we even know what that means two things about jesus stand out as we look back on this surprising event number one his kingship had ancient roots and number two His kingship was not understood. It was not understood. So first, his kingship had ancient roots. Matthew comments as he's recounting the event where he was present. He comments in verse 4 that Jesus' actions fulfilled ancient prophecy. Since Jesus planned His entrance to be on the foal of a donkey by sending disciples to fetch them, it's safe to assume that Jesus had had a plan that this is how He was going to make His approach to the city gates. Read verse 4 with me just to uh, review this. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. That's the prophet Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Zechariah lived four centuries before Jesus came. He prophesied after Jerusalem had been devastated by the Babylonians and was now being restored. He called God's people to return to the Lord and to look for God's king to lead them. But kingship has very deep roots in Scripture. God has always planned to rule the world through a king. Adam served as a king in the Garden of Eden. Jacob prophesied that from his son Judah would come a king to rule the people's. Through Moses, God gave the law, and that law included rules for how Israel's kings were to conduct themselves, commanding them to be devoted to the law of God, the written word of God. And then, 400 years after Moses' death and after centuries of disunity in the land of Israel, Israel was united under a king. The first king, Saul, failed. But then God raised up David, a man after God's own heart. David ruled brilliantly, but even he ultimately failed as king. But he saw that his rule was temporary and it represented something bigger than what he was about. David's Psalm number 110 reflects his understanding that his kingship was only a shadow of what was to come. One day, God would raise up a king whom God would call David's Lord. The Lord, Yahweh, God, said to my Lord, David's Lord, sit at my right hand while I put your enemies under your feet. And so, God is calling a future son of David... David's Lord. It's a verse that the New Testament makes much of. David's dynasty did continue. But 400 years after his death, the monarchy passed from Israel. The royal line would continue, but no one would sit on David's throne. Israel fell into decline Though it remained a nation, the Romans controlled Jerusalem, and a corrupt priesthood ruled the people in everyday matters. But the prophecies remained. And Israel, the people of Israel, remembered these words. There was a longing among the Israelites for a Messiah, an anointed king by God, to save them. That's what Hosanna means. Save us. Save us. Any ruler except for the most domineering tyrant must prove that his authority is legitimate. The Roman emperors sought their legitimacy in the Roman gods and their ancient heritage going back to the founding of Rome. Our presidents claim legitimacy by pointing to the will of the people reflected in elections, which is why questioning the legitimacy of the past two elections has weakened America's government in the eyes of the people. People have to recognize you have a right to rule. There's legitimacy to your rule. So what would make Jesus' claim to kingship legitimate? Well, he came in fulfillment of ancient prophecy. And in his teaching, his life of integrity, his miracles, he showed that he was the king God had always had in mind to rule his people until the earth is filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And he was biologically, as we like to say, a descendant of the great king, David. So Jesus' claim to kingship had ancient roots, and Jesus knew it, and he planned his entry into Jerusalem to reflect those roots. But of course, he couldn't have controlled the crowd's response. They created spontaneously a royal road for Jesus to ride on as he approached the city. Did they really get it? Did they really know what exactly was going on? Uh, They didn't. Jesus coming to Jerusalem and its outcome was utterly baffling to everyone that was present on that day. Only the Spirit of God can open eyes to see what Jesus did was actually a royal path to his final enthronement and rule. So it had ancient roots, but people didn't get it. They carried the desire for a Messiah, for a king, a king to come and put an end to the wicked Roman rule, to the corrupt priesthood, but they didn't connect the dots with Jesus. Number two, Jesus' kingship was not understood. Now, try to imagine what life in Israel was like for your average Jew. You had to deal with the brutal Romans, and you had to contend with people like the Pharisees who would put impossible burdens on you to obey their applications of the law. You had Roman taxes and temple taxes. And from our perspective... Most people, the vast majority of people, were very poor. So, what would you expect from a king? Kings protect their people, they defend them from foreign invaders and punish the wicked in their midst. And expecting this from Jesus was not a selfish dream. This is what God intended and promised. And we are still waiting for Jesus to do that. To put down the wicked. And to protect His people from persecution and deprivation. If you were daily reminded of the humiliation of the Romans and the abuses of the ruling class, wouldn't you expect Jesus to use His power to set things right? Jesus did come to set things right. And the first and primary problem, the thing that needed setting right for both the rich and the poor, the rulers and the ruled, the Romans and the Jews, the thing everyone had a problem with was alienation from God and living under His judgment. Before Jesus could set society right, He had to overcome our offenses to God and change our hearts. So he enters the city riding on the smallest beast of burden you could find. The common people see he's different. He's not anything like the religious leaders they know. And so they celebrate his arrival. And the people of Jerusalem are perplexed. And as Jesus asserts his kingly leadership over the next week, overturning the money changers' temple in that money changers tables in the temple pronouncing God's judgment on the Pharisees refuting their every attack he'll eventually find himself the target of false accusation a corrupt trial and death at the hands of the Romans he entered the city to receive a crown but no one could have predicted that the crown he would receive was a crown of thorns That preceded His death. And He did all these things because He is King. All this because humanity's first and primary problem is our sins against God and the judgment we justly deserve. So the King begins setting things right by dying for the sins of His people. Oh, so quickly we, just like the ancient... uh, the, the people of Jesus' day, we're, we're looking for a social change. We're looking for a political change. We're looking for answers in how we are organized and how we dwell together. But Jesus knew that our first and our primary problem is our alienation from God and the just judgment that the best of us deserve from him now I know you all and I know that most of us here get this we can never know enough about Jesus death on our behalf and we need to every week be reminded of that both in our songs our prayers and the supper that we take but there's more to his rule than his dying for us. And I think this is something that we have a really hard time grasping, especially because we're Americans. <laughs> we must come to terms with the fact that to follow Jesus is to follow a king. So, let's think about how God wants the world to be ruled. God created the world in such a way that human beings have to live together. Get it? Okay. Secondly, someone must determine how they should live together. We all get that. Thirdly, someone must stop those who violate the harmony of that society. Those, the wicked within the community and invaders from outside the community. And God established kings to do this. He ruled Israel. His intention was to rule Israel through kings. It was his chosen form of government. Now, before following that thought much farther, let's let's ask the question, what's the purpose and goal of a king's rule? Okay, what, what is a king after? Now, we all know of kings who rule for the sake of their own pleasure and power. And what do we call them? We call them tyrants. We also know of kings who rule for the glory of their nation. And so they seek to assert its domination over other nations. And so you end up with imperial oppression. Think of the Roman Empire and how that entire empire existed to serve the city of Rome and the citizens of Rome. But there's another motive for ruling, and that's the glory of God in uniting all things in Jesus Christ. When a king rules, understanding that he is ruled by God, that he is accountable to the one true God who is perfect in all his ways and he seeks to shape his kingdom as best he can to reflect the goodness and the beauty and the, the, the social harmony of the very nature of God himself, then you end up with the peace and the prosperity that God intends for humanity. Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now Jesse was David's father. So the monarchy is going to be cut down and there's going to come a little shoot out of that stump of the monarchy. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. This king is going to get his greatest happiness in fearing the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. That's the kind of king you want. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And this is, what, this is the kind of kingdom that he is going to establish. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And chapter 11 continues with a description of this king's rule extending to the ends of the earth. That's God's intention for kingship. That was always God's intention for kingship. Any king who seeks to imitate king jesus whether his authority is over a family or over a nation he will introduce the kind of peace and prosperity that's described in isaiah chapter 11 so now here's the question here's we really get down to the good stuff how does the united states of america fit into this framework So we got to ask because this is our country and this country has, has established us in certain ways of thinking that we need to compare with the way God thinks about government. Our forefathers rejected the idea of kingship. They said we would be a nation who had no king. And so we don't do kings in America here. Well, remember I said three things that every nation needs if we're going to live together in harmony? Somebody's got to replace the king in making sure that a society is protected from evildoers and dwells in harmony. So, who's going to take this role of the king? And how does our constitution begin? We, the people. The people become king. And they elect representatives to exercise the will of the people. And what is the purpose and goal of this new nation? Well, what's enshrined in our Constitution is that the nation exists to ensure individual rights. And to stop those people who might violate those rights. In the United States, the individual stands as the center. Not the glory and harmony of God. In the United States, my choice remains supre- reigns supreme. And government exists to protect my choices." Do you see how this works? Some of us scratch our heads. How could anyone come up with telling a woman that the government will protect her right to kill her unborn child? Well, if you understand that choice and rights is the center of this American government, You can understand that that's the direction people go. You can understand that. I think we're affected by this far more than we realize. I think we look at our lives and think it's all about my choice. I have rights. When my rights are violated, I will go to the government to restore those rights to me either through criminal justice or civil justice. I will seek those things out. And if the government fails me, I will pressure the government through demonstrations and marches and lobbying, political pressure to get what I want for me. Our whole economy is built around choice. And we are continually being bombarded with messages that tell us that you can choose the products and the experiences that will lead you into the good life. You can be anything you want to be, and if you buy our product, we'll help you get there. So this is, this is built into us. Ancient people didn't think this way. They fit into a kingdom. They saw where they fit into that kingdom. Maybe they were high up on the ladder toward the king, Or maybe they were a farmer in the field. But their job was to fit in to something bigger than their little individual choice. So then Jesus comes to Jerusalem to take up His throne. What was His goal and purpose in His rule? Was it so He could dominate others for His own selfish ends? No, He came to serve His Father by serving His people. Even to the point of dying on a cross for them. Did He come to Jerusalem to gain glory for the nation of Israel? No, He came to unite all peoples and things in perfect harmony to the glory of God. Did Jesus come to Jerusalem and establish his reign to secure my right to choose what I want for myself? No, he did not. And we've got to get that out of our minds. He does not exist for us. We exist for him. And he paid the ultimate price so that we could live in the goodness of that existence. Jesus did not come to set me free to pursue life as I want my life to be. He came to set me free to fit into his plans and his purposes. Because he is the king. He decides how his subjects should best fit together. So my station in life, my wealth or lack of wealth... My occupation, my marriage, my family, my friends, my hobbies, my church are not for me and not under my control, but for him and under his control. It doesn't mean I don't have to make decisions, but my decisions are not oriented toward what I want, but toward what He wants, because he is king. And what an amazing king he is. In this text, we must see him in his royal procession coming into Jerusalem, riding on a little donkey. He comes to rule in service to his father. He begins his rule by dying for his people. And conquering death by rising from the dead. And now he calls us to follow him. To fit into his kingdom. Not to free us to pursue our own pleasure and prosperity. But to free us to participate in the glory of God. Through the service of our great king. Jesus Christ. This is the one who came into the city. He is both our king and our model for how to live under his kingship. Let us now follow him in this royal procession. Let's pray. Lord Jesus was tempted by the devil and did not sin, but we are tempted by the devil thousands of ways and somehow miss it. We pray that we would not be tempted into thinking like a typical American, that we are kings of our own lives and that you exist to serve us. Teach us, Lord, to be amazed that our king's first act in making us his subjects was to die in our place and to rise in power. And now to rule before his final rule is fulfilled as Isaiah 11 describes, to now follow his rule by being loyal subjects and proclaiming this message, not from a position of political power, but a position of weakness, just like Jesus demonstrated as he rode into Jerusalem. Oh, Jesus Christ, make us like Yourself. We pray this to You, Father, through Your Son, Jesus. Amen.